to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investing. Hey everyone, this is Brian Briscoe with Four Oaks Capital, and this is journal entry number 62 of the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast, and it's part of our multifamily brief series. You know, today, we're going to talk a little bit about how to formulate your investing strategy if you're a passive investor or you want to be a passive investor. And oh, by the way, stay tuned to the very end, and we'll talk about how you can get a free presentation that, is, that discusses exactly what we're going to talk about on this episode. So we talk with a lot of people that are interested in investing in apartments and a surprising number of people don't really understand how to align their personal investment goals with multifamily investing strategies. And oh, by the way, multifamily is just a fancy word for apartment buildings. You know, depending on the, what your goals are, for example, you know, folks, capital may not be your best fit. So what are your investing goals? I think that's the first question you should ask yourself if you're planning on investing in anything, whether it's a stock market, you know, exchange traded fund or, or anything like that, or uh, real estate for that, for that matter. Um, what are your investing investment goals? Are you looking to make the biggest impact to your net worth or are you more interested in cash flow? And you have to realize that different property types and different investment strategies are going to yield different types of results with various risk profiles. So let's talk about you know, how maybe you can start developing this strategy. First thing I want to talk about a little bit is, is the risk involved in, in real estate in general. For just about everybody, I think capital preservation is a big deal. You, know, you don't want to lose money. We invest to make money. You know, so let's let's look at what happened over the last couple of recessions. According to a report by CBRE, you know, they're a national commercial lender. And incidentally, we do have a $2 million loan with them, which is a small balance loan. You're talking about commercial real estate. Um, but multifamily, is, it's not immune to recessions, but it is fairly resilient. You know, in 2001, for example, according to the CBRE report, multifamily was one of the first major property, was the first, sorry, the first major property type to stop losing value. And it recovered the quickest. You know, fast forward to 2008, we saw exactly the same thing. Repeat of 2001. All asset classes, all property types lost a little bit of value, but multifamily lost the least and recovered the fastest and went on to 42 straight quarters of growth, which is 10 and a half straight years. In the current recession, multifamily is actually behind industrial real estate in the recovery, but it's far ahead of office and retail. Now, we're not out of the woods yet on the current recession, but end of the day, people need a place to live. And that's part of what keeps multifamily as resilient as it is. Now, let's look at some of the different strategies and how that affects the returns. First of all, I'm going to say that any strategy that assumes market growth automatically incurs a certain level of risk. You know, If future profits are dependent on the proverbial rising tide that lifts all ships, that's a much riskier position than if the profits are dependent on just bringing a property up to the current market rents. I think it's important for anybody passively investing to understand this. The higher percentage the returns or the total returns are from market growth, the more risk that's associated with those returns. Uh, so out of the strategies, you know, I've got three different strategies I want to talk about. Uh, we'll also talk about you know, the different markets um, and how that affects your, your investment strategy. And we'll also talk a little bit about asset class. And actually, when I get there, I'm, I'm going to completely punt. I don't know that already, but uh, I, I will show you where you can get some more information on that. 
All right. So let's start out with, you know, a value add strategy. This strategy, you know, a company like ours will purchase a performing asset. You know, that means it's it's property that has tenants in there. You know, if, if you have, you know, 100 units, you might have 95 tenants. A company that will, perform, will purchase a performing asset that may need a little bit of work. Perhaps it hasn't been renovated in a few decades. You know, maybe the previous owners neglected maintenance or didn't run the property very efficiently. But regardless, value-add strategies tend to bring a relatively high return for the associated risk. Now, returns on a value-add property are largely based on bringing the asset up to current market conditions. For example, let's assume the subject property is averaging $800 a month in rent and a comparable property that's a half mile away with similar floor plans, you know, roughly the same square footage and, and amenities, but is just in better condition is getting $1,000 a month per rent. You know, if you as a new owner spend a bunch of money to increase the curb appeal and bring the interiors up to the same level as the comparable property, you can expect to get about $1,000 in rent per unit when all said and done. Note the return on investment from this strategy is not completely dependent upon rents growing substantially in future years. Now, of course, most putting most people putting deals like this together will forecast some year-over-year rent growth, and that's to be expected, but the majority of the profits will come from the higher rents achieved through the renovations. It's a term that we call forced appreciation. You're forcing the value of the property to go up, and you're forcing the rents to go up. The next thing we'll talk about is a stabilized property. This is a property that is in good condition, has low vacancy rates, and is already at or close to market levels in rents. Income from this type of property usually comes from the cash flow from their rents minus the expenses. And you can expect the returns on a stabilized property to be less than a value-add property, but there's also corresponding lower risk. And the risk, we'll talk about that a little bit. When you purchase a stabilized property, the deal sponsor can typically get a bank to lend 75% of the value of the property. And the deal sponsor will then have typically raise private capital you know, or look for passive investors for the down payment, closing costs, and reserves. Now, the total debt plus equity is only going to be marginally higher than the value of the property. Now, with a value add, on the other hand, let's assume the same 75% loan to value. The deal sponsor must also raise a substantial amount of capital for the renovations. In this case, the total debt plus the equity raised or the money from private investors or passive investors can be 15 to 20% higher or even more than the, than the property value at the time of purchase. And if mismanaged, this can lead to a loss of capital and therefore is a slightly riskier position to be in. Now, next thing we'll look at is repositioning. Oh, and I'll go back to stabilized property before we do that. Um, when we're looking at stabilized properties, once again, there is some year over year rent growth that is calculated in, into the returns on these properties. But if you're looking at a stabilized property, you know, just make sure that the, the rent growths aren't off the chart, that they're, abs- they're, they're reasonable. Now, the th- last thing I'm going to talk about is a, a reposition. You know, it's in this category, I'm talking about a property that's was built for a different purpose, being churned into apartment complex, or potentially, you know, a massive overhaul of an existing multifamily asset. In the case of a value add, you know, the team putting this together 
may may put five thousand, ten thousand, or even fifteen thousand dollars per unit in planned renovations. Now this varies by market. You know we're generally in the southeast, and some of the costs in the southeast are lower than they would be in in the northeast or, or say California. But end of the day, in repositions, the cost per unit can triple those amounts or even be higher. Now in a value add cases, the renovation occurs in select units while the rest of the property is full paying rents. So once again, when we look at this 100 unit property, you may have 90 tenants that are paying rent and you may be renovating you know, five to 10 of these units at a time and trying to rent the other remaining left. So with a reposition, typically the property is completely vacant or vacated to perform the, the renovations. That means they are not earning money. They have higher carrying costs that they have to take care of during the the renovation period. Now, projects that go over budget or get stretched out run a higher risk of loss or lower than projected returns. Of the three, the stabilized property minimizes the risk, but it does have lower returns. Repositions have a medium amount of risk and higher returns or the potential for higher returns. And value add comes with low risk and solid returns. Now, something else we'll talk about is, is the markets. You know, where in the nation or where in the world are you going to be investing in real estate? It does matter. There are some areas that are forecasted to achieve high growth year over year, and real estate in these markets will typically perform better than markets that may be declining. Now, I know I just finished saying that returns based on year over year growth involve more risk, and I'm not going to contradict myself. That is absolutely true. You know, but part of the reason we focus on the value add properties is so we can take advantage of market appreciation and the forced appreciation. In a sense, we're hedging our bets a little bit. We do assume that the market will continue to go up. And you know, we think that COVID is just a temporary problem that we're facing that we'll get over in you know, six months to a year from now. You know, but we do temper the market optimism with a solid value add plan to forced appreciation. Now, what markets are do- what markets are doing better than others? Well, it depends on the metrics that you use. You know, U.S. News recently published a list with the fastest growing cities in the U.S. Most of them were in the Southeast. In fact, the only states that had multiple cities on this top twenty-five list were Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Texas. Also, looked at U-Haul statistics, which you know paint a picture of you know who's moving where, where where trucks are leaving, and where trucks are going. And it paints a similar picture. The Southeast, Texas, and Intermountain West are the big winners. And the Northeast, West Coast, and the Rust Belt are the big losers. You can also look at IRS tax data. It shows a similar picture with money moving from the Northeast to the Southeast and from California inland. Overall, money and people are moving from high cost of living to low cost of living areas. And they're also moving from areas with cold winters to the areas with more mild winters. So north to south and from high to low. So on the east coast, the southeast, and in the west, Intermountain West and Texas are really the big winners right now. Now, this net inward migration to a certain location is more likely to create a supply and demand imbalance in housing, which will create conditions that are best for future growth in your investment thus mitigating a portion of the risk involved in depending on the rising tide on your investment. But hey, if we're talking about the rising tide, isn't the whole idea of index funds in the stock market based on a rising tide as well? So last thing I wanted to discuss when we're looking at your investment strategies is 
asset class, but it's something that I, I covered in a previous podcast, and it's episode seven that aired in July. But you know, just just to make it easier for you to find, I moved it to the head of the line, and it should be the next episode in the stack. So look for it, and when you're done listening to this one, just you know, listen to that one, and we can continue the same thread. All right, now that's it for for today's show. Uh, but I do need to talk about what I promised at the beginning. So last last week I, I gave a presentation that was essentially this podcast as a presentation to an investing group. If you want to copy the presentation, all you have to do is subscribe to our new website. Pretty simple. We ask for an email address, and we're going to send it to that email address. So the website is www.diaryofanapartmentinvestor.com. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show. So pull out your phone, tap subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.